Hello, and welcome to this episode of My 2020. As we look back on this historic year, each of us has had our own unique experience. For too many, this has been a difficult year, losing loved ones or losing jobs and businesses. For others, it has meant a real sense of displacement. Some of us can consider ourselves lucky as we remained healthy and in employment, but still struggled with drastic changes on how we go about our day-to-day lives. Part of those changes required renegotiating our living and working spaces with others. To discuss this and other phenomena in this extraordinary year, I'm joined by one of the world's leading experts on negotiations and human behavior. Dr. Dan Shapiro is founder and director of the Harvard International Negotiation Program, who also serves as associate professor in psychology at Harvard Medical School, McLean Hospital, an affiliate faculty at the Program on Negotiation at Harvard Law School. He has several publications, including one of my all-time favorite books, Negotiating the Non-Negotiable, How to Resolve Your Most Emotionally Charged Conflicts. Hi, Dan. It's good to speak to you. It is great to speak with you, Mina. Thank you for making the time for this. Um, And on a busy day, I guess, since teaching is in full swing. Yes, teaching, if you can call it that in full swing, it's, it's double full swing. Trying to teach to 96 students on Zoom is a wonderful challenge for somebody who enjoys teaching, yes. (laughs) So tell me, in addition to teaching on Zoom, how COVID-19 has impacted your life? Oh, I I mean, in, in, in many, many different ways. Obviously, one, the nature of the work I do is in negotiation, conflict resolution, working on international conflicts, and typically flying to all the different continents, trying to help people deal with their differences more effectively. So big change number one personally has been that I've been home with my family in the same house for the past six months, you know, and experiencing all the joys and all the challenges of living in close quarters with those you love most. Um, so that that's, you know, piece number one. Piece number two in terms of how the pandemic has affected me is in a sense how it's affected the world. I remember writing what was initially an article to, uh, on the dangers of emerging conflicts once the pandemic first hit. And when the pandemic first hit, my big observation was everybody seemed to be working very well together. There was a lot of cooperation in the world, certainly a lot of cooperation in the United States and so on. And yet m- my, my shoulders raised. I was nervous. Because my my notion was, well, soon enough, people are going to be having to figure out how to ration resources, how to deal with the challenges of, um, you know, the real nitty gritty challenges of the pandemic. And I think now we see something very different. You know, we see conflict once again, center stage in the world in many different ways, in all different regions of the world. The United States right now is having its own struggles with conflict. My time has been consumed with that question. How can we deal with our conflicts most effectively in this challenging global moment? So I want to look at first how to deal with conflicts at home. And as you said, with people who you love dearly and who you actually feel really fortunate to be able to spend time with. But as week one becomes week four and as week four becomes week 16, it becomes more difficult. So how can people deal with that? The number one way to deal with that, I think, is a a simple concept called appreciation. (laughs) When we're all crammed into the same quarters together day after day, it can become very easy to feel unappreciated. 
any of us. And the problem is that we are much more inclined to want appreciation than to give it. And the reality is that everybody in your own household is craving appreciation. And this affords every single one of us in this globe this opportunity. What is it today or tonight? Appreciate somebody in your house. Just one single line and watch the impact. And, and the science behind this is also very clear. Uh, you know, there are colleagues who are able to predict marital stability some 10 years later based upon observing one minute's worth of interaction between a couple. And the primary predictor of marital stability across a number of cultures, in fact, is whether people feel appreciated. That's really interesting what you said about appreciation because it is a simple thing, but it's also a difficult thing when, again, time accumulates and people who are used to traveling, going out to their workspace and so forth weren't able to do so. What did you learn personally from this period of time? Toward the beginning of the pandemic, I was talking with a colleague of mine in what used to be called Macedonia, psychiatrist who had worked with refugees from the war in that region. And she said, this globe, our world needs to think very carefully about the fact that we are enduring massive trauma. All of us, the entire world. And unless we deal with that trauma in a very systematic and effective way, we're going to have a seriously problematic world. And she saw the problems of that in her own region, where that region did not deal with the, 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 the problems of um, trauma post-conflict, post-violence. My own work in conflict resolution and situations of serious violence, if people do not mourn, you have tremendous problematic emotions that start to arise. In the situations of conflict, it means resentment that reemerges, means conflict that reemerges. In this situation, I don't quite know what not mourning means, but I know it wouldn't be good. You know, because it, it's the human soul craving to feel heard, craving to feel hugged, calmed. And if we don't have that, if we don't think about that and support each other at all levels, I think we're, you know, we're in for a tough ride. But don't you think in a way, ironically, the fact that we're all collectively going through this helps more than, imagine if it was just one country or if it was one place and you were part of that country. I mean, if you weren't in that country or in that one place, you're fine. But if you were in that one country, you would feel so much resentment. But it's strange, but it's almost like the fact that it's global, that we're all in this together. In some way, yes, we're mourning and there's a lot of grief, but the grief allows us to feel an affinity with others because actually that sense of loss is shared. I, I agree with you to some extent. Let me think about it differently. Think about a family with parents who divorce, that's a loss. That's a trauma for the entire family system. Everybody is going through that together. The question is, are they talking about it? Are they able to consciously and deliberately talk together? This has been really painful. Do the kids have opportunity to feel heard? And, and who are they talking to? Are the parents you know, in, that, in that system talking, we can endure, and, and the same goes with international conflicts or civil conflicts, you can have enormous trauma. And yet, what are the processes of reconciling emotionally? So I, I, I think the fact that we have all endured this together actually can connect us, but it also can blind us to some of the needs that we actually have.
I mean, healthcare systems are complex. Trying to negotiate the the, the, the um, sort of the, the formulation and the distribution of medication is complex. There's an exercise that I'll often do with senior leadership. There are seven patients in this case that I've developed who are in need of a treatment, a medical treatment for a fictitious kind of cancer. I call it bisotoma. And there was only enough treatment for three of them. The other four will die. So the question is, people have to independently prioritize who should live and who should die. Is it the, the cute little five-year-old boy that's suffering? Is it his mom who also is suffering from this disease? Is it the philanthropist? Is it the 65-year-old grandmother? And then the challenge of the exercise is then I ask people in groups of five or six to jointly come to consensus on who should live and who should die, rank ordering from one to seven. And what is most striking to me is that everybody's list is a little bit different. Yeah, the boy comes first in almost every list. And sadly, I don't know why, but the grandmother typically comes last, maybe because of, of the age factor. Um, but beyond that, there are any number of arguments why one should put a person first or second or third or fourth. And what I've learned through that and now I'm seeing as we are moving forward with these questions of the distribution of vaccines is there are many different potential right answers. The participants in that exercise, they initially rank from one to seven independently who should get the treatment. That's tough enough. What are your values? What are your beliefs? Who should get it? Who shouldn't? Then they have to go and form a consensual decision. Who should get the treatment? Who shouldn't? One of the seven patients, her name is Margaret. She is a 64-year-old lawyer who has two adopted Native American youth. Almost everybody all the time puts Margaret either sixth or seventh on the list. In other words, she's banished to death, condemned to death. After they all do this exercise, I then ask them, how many of you chose to kill off Margaret? And most people, in fact, raise their hands and I storm up to somebody and I say, well, guess what? That is my Aunt Margaret, <laughs> you know, and it really is my Aunt Margaret, who is the most spectacular, beautiful, amazing, spiritual person in the world, and they are killing her off. And I start yelling at that person because my heart is there. You are killing my Aunt Margaret. And people don't know what to say at that point in time. It's really easy in the quiet of a meeting room to decide who should live and who should die, which is really what this decision is about. But it's very different when you confront reality around this decision emotionally. And part of my purpose with that is to say, this is a very human problem. You know, as people are making these decisions around vaccines and the pandemic, recognize this is not just theory, this is not in the abstract. Talk to a couple of people who you've condemned to death. You know, and you say, oh, no, but that's going to bias my decision-making, really? It's just the opposite. It's going to inform your decision-making because your decision-making is now human. And how can people quell my anger? What people typically do is they defend their own decision-making. Well, there were seven people. There was a child. How could we not do the child? And how could we not do the child's mother? And the philanthropist is saving hundreds of thousands of people through his donations and what do I, as Margaret's nephew, say? I say, don't care. I don't care. I don't care about any of that. 
Because what you are doing is you're trying to argue, I mean, not you, Mina, but the other is doing is trying to argue from the perspective of logic. And my experience is emotionally consuming. Until you can appreciate my perspective, until on some level I feel that we are able to sit side by side and you can mourn with me this decision and the loss that it entails, I'm going to reject, reject, reject you. I think governments have that challenge now. I think we all have that challenge. The problem is not with trying to find the right answer. I think the problem is what's the best process to get us to find those answers. One of the ideas that you often promote is how do you make your interlocutor, the person that you're negotiating with, the person on the other side, feel safe and and therefore in the capacity to actually negotiate or accept some difficult decisions. How can you create that at a time when lives are being so disrupted by COVID-19, when, when there was fear, I mean, and, and continues to be genuine fear, um, to allow people to actually think clearly? Well, first, take a deep breath. These are hard times. And I, I think any leader, before you make a big decision, literally take a deep breath. Uh, it helps to clear the mind. It helps to focus. Second, look at conflict not as something scary or frightening. There is this marvelous management expert on negotiation from the 1910s, 1920s. Her name's Mary Parker Follett. And she says that conflict is actually friction. And yes, friction can ignite a fire, but it's also what allows the violin to play beautiful music. Conflict is not necessarily bad. It is how you deal with it. We often approach conflict as zero sum. It is me versus you. It is the, you know, sadly in the United States to some degree, it's some of the politicians versus some of the global health experts. No, that's not the right way to be thinking about conflict. This is a, we have shared problems in our world right now. The pandemic is, you know, one of the greatest shared problems that our world has ever seen. Climate change is another, but we can't be seeing these as zero sum competitions. I lose or I win at your cost or you win at my cost. We need to shift it. It's, it's the two of us sitting side by side, facing the same shared problem pandemic is not your problem. It's not my problem. It is our problem. And the more that we can define it as such, the more powerful we will be in dealing with it and the more effective we'll be at dealing with it as well. Our interests get met. In your writing, you say that each of us is quite tribal in nature or can be quite tribal in nature and and how we form tribes uh, based on affinity, based on, you know, w- where we find we, what we hold sacred uh, is mutual and so forth. How has our tribal nature changed during this pandemic? Our world is a tribal world. Tribes are a beautiful thing. When I use the term tribe, what I mean is any group to which we feel some sort of family-like connection, kin-like connection. The problem is that when our tribal identity feels threatened, when we feel threatened threatened on some group level, all of a sudden our mind spins away from feeling part of a global community, and now we must protect our own tribe and often protect our own tribe over the community as a whole. This is the danger of the tribe. You know, so again, it's, it's a purely self-defensive motive. We're trying to protect our own family. 
when it comes to something like the pandemic, of course, this becomes a threat. Is my group, is my tribe going to get the medication? Is mine, is mine? And, and very quickly, we can move toward this tribal mindset. And the tribal mindset has some very clear and somewhat ominous characteristics. One, it's adversarial. You and I might live in the same part of the country, but all of a sudden, oh no, you know, as much as we might be related, it's now you versus me. Second, this tribal mindset is self-righteous. So as you and I are trying to deal with our differences, I know I am right and correct and legitimacy is on my side. And you are wrong and crazy. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and third, the tribal mindset is insular. I will argue, I will defend my perspectives to no ends, but I'm going to close my ears to your perspective. What does this mean in the United States? We see this you know, in, in a deep and very polarizing, challenging form right now as left and right, what we would call the red and the blue, are battling it out. There's such polarization in the United States. Everybody is part of the same national family, united, supposedly, states of America. And yet the moment that somebody's identity feels threatened, we're not getting as many resources out Midwest as you, you know, East Coasters, or you elitists in the East Coast, or this or that. The moment identity starts to become threatened, that notion of a national family starts to become much more tense. That tribal mindset does start to appear. And we do have a real challenge then. And whether it's around national unity, whether it's around the distribution of medication and vaccines in a pandemic, the real challenge, in my opinion, is psychological. How do we recast our, the nature of our human connection with the priority going to the global family over purely tribal interest? Last point on this, just one other point. I don't think that means that we should negate or neglect our tribal interest. It doesn't mean that the East Coast is less worthy than the Midwest in the United States or vice versa. What it means, in my opinion, is that leadership need to be focused on satisfying both the tribal interests and the communal interests. And the mindset, I think, needs to be a civic one. The mindset needs to be one where the good of the many the good of the broader community is what's accented. And yet at the same time, we are still working to nourish all of the different tribal elements within a broader national concept. Do you think we're heading in that direction where there is that maturity and that insight? Because the whole world um, got caught up in, in this pandemic. And as you said, there's also climate change. There are many global challenges. Are we heading in that direction? There's an exercise that I've built over time that I think speaks to the question you are raising. I call it the tribes exercise. And I, as I think you know, I've run this exercise all around the world, including at Davos with the World Economic Forum, some of their senior leadership. The basic idea of this exercise, let me give you the Davos example. We had 45 senior leadership come into the same small crammed room in Davos at the World Economic Forum. Uh, you know, in the snowy winters in Switzerland. And I invited these 45 leaders. They were at small tables, about eight people per table. I invited them at each table to create their own tribal identity. What are the key values of your tribe? What are your tribe's key beliefs, 
dress up in your tribal garb, create your tribal flag. And 45, 50 minutes later, we all come back together. There's six different groups, each now taking on their own tribal identity. Everybody was having fun. We start debriefing this exercise and all of a sudden the lights go black. And into the room bursts a colleague dressed up as an intergalactic alien. And this colleague says, I am an intergalactic alien. I have come to destroy the earth. I will give you one opportunity to save this world from complete destruction. You must choose one of these six tribes to be the tribe of everybody. Everybody must take on your tribe's characteristics. And if you cannot come to agreement by the end of three rounds of negotiation, the world will be destroyed. <laughs> you know, now floats this alien. And these global leaders, to their benefit, they stepped up to the task. You could feel it. The energy in the room was we are global leaders who have negotiated serious issues in the real world. We are going to save the world. Round one of negotiation in the middle of that room with leaders of each group, spokespeople, no agreement. Round two, only a few minutes later, these leaders come back to try to negotiate which tribe will be the tribe of everybody, no agreement. And to make a long story short, round three, no agreement. The world exploded at Davos. Over the course of 50 minutes, these literally global leaders had crafted tribal identities that they now felt so identified with that they would rather save that tribal identity than save the world. That, to me, is a metaphor of the danger that is in front of us. We all feel more closely identified with our own nation, with our own group, with our own religion, with our own ethnicity, and on and on than that of others. And at the same time, can we move beyond that tribal mindset toward a more communal mindset? I think it is possible. I think it is absolutely possible. And I look at some of my own global heroes and how they have done so. One example, the great Mandela, you know, um, from South Africa. Uh, everybody knows the story after 27 years, but, but he, he lived it. After 27 years of imprisonment, he walks out of prison. And what is one of the first things that he does? He has coffee with the, the wife, the widow of the former leader of South Africa who had imprisoned him. Why did he do that? I think he had this notion that if I walk out of prison and say, we, you know, the, 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 minor, the, the, the majority who have been out of power, we are going to retake power. He knew that that wasn't going to make a lasting, sustainable society. He knew and I think believed in that African philosophy of Ubuntu. It is not, it is, it is not just about me. It is me connected to you, connected to my friend, connected to my enemy. We are all interconnected as a global family. And if we lose sight of that, Yes, we are going to fall prey to that tribal mindset and nobody's going to do as well in the long term, in the long term. 
So Dan, I'll just uh, clarify one point. You know, you and I have had this conversation that when we say tribal, often in the Arab world, people might think we're talking about our culture. But it's really that tribal in terms of anybody who feels that they are being attacked for who they are. So it's identity politics? It is identity politics. I, yes. So, so just to be clear, I should have clarified that at the beginning. When I use the word tribe, I am not just thinking about tribes that are in the Middle East, nor tribes as in Native American tribes in the United States, the many other tribes. It is any group to which you feel a close-knit connection. But the problem is, typically in conflict, each side moves into that self-defensive mode. Now you have a battle. You don't have people working side by side together. So negotiating, uh, you, you talked about that human interaction. And yet human interaction has really been disrupted this year where physically being in the same room, you know, that, that image that you created of CEOs sitting in a cramped small room in Davos, you know, it's hard to imagine that happening anytime soon. Um, and negotiation and the building of trust, as you know, confidence building measures and so forth usually happen over long, drawn out, many, many hours where you're sitting in, in clo behind closed doors. That's also not possible. So how do you think negotiation and the ability to resolve conflicts is being impacted by the fact that we can't physically be in the same room in many instances? Zoom is an interesting thing. <laughs> I, you know, watching recent negotiations internationally unfold on Zoom, Zoom is a very interesting thing because it flattens a lot of the power dynamics. If I am you know, the president of the United States or the leader of a country, the head of an organization, Normally, I sit at the head of a table, and every all of my people sit behind me, you know, uh, and the other head is on the other side, whatever it might be on Zoom. We're all a single little square, equal in height, and, and, um, and so status starts to flatten a bit. Um, that's good and that's bad. You know, I think it can make the leader crave status a little bit more than they otherwise would. On the other hand, it does create more of an equal platform for everybody to talk, at least to some extent. More generally, I think human nature is human nature. Whether one is interacting in the home, trying to deal with conflict in your home life, or at work, online, on some platform, through my research, we found that there are five basic concerns that we all have in a negotiation. And the awareness of these five core, I call them core concerns. So what are the five core concerns? So the first, we've, we've talked a bit about already, appreciation. You know, that none of us likes to feel unappreciated. So unheard, devalued, misunderstood. And that's just as true online as it is in person. The second of these things that we call core concerns, autonomy. It's the freedom to make decisions without somebody else imposing a decision on you. The moment I go and tell my 15-year-old in the other room right now, Noah, it is what? It's 10 o'clock in the morning. You have to get out of bed. It's school. The moment I walk in and I tell him, rather than trying to negotiate with him or consult with him, I have a teenage problem on my hands. Not that it's the wrong thing for me to do as a parent to get my kid out of bed, but that's autonomy. The third of these core concerns is affiliation. What's the emotional connection like between you and me? As you're talking on Zoom, for example, or in person, do you feel included in conversations or excluded? Included in the decision-making or unfairly excluded? 
that's affiliation. And just like with these other core concerns, if that need does not go met, we feel negative emotions and we don't want to work with the other as much. The fourth of these core concerns is status. Who's up? Who's down? Who's talking the most? I, I mean, like, what? It's, it's a fun thing to someday observe a meeting that you're a part of and observe it not through the lens of substance, what people are actually negotiating or talking about the issues. Observe it through the lens of status. Who's trying to prop themselves up? I am the most important person in the entire world. And where are the competitions around status? I find that so many meetings are not about substance. It's about competition over status. And if that's the goal of the meeting, that's usually not the most effective you know, goal if, you're, if, if you have substantive purposes in mind. The fifth of these core concerns is role. What role are you playing in your own household? What role are you playing in your business negotiations? Are you the kind of person who always plays the role of problem solver or listener or relationship builder? And is that the most effective role in that particular negotiation? The problem solver is wonderful, but the problem solver may not be as good of a role for you as the decision maker, the quick decision maker in a moment of pandemic crisis. When you're in the midst of a pandemic, when the crisis is at hand, it probably doesn't make this make much sense to take on the role of the relationship builder, spending 30 minutes asking, oh, how are the kids, how are the grandkids? No, you have a problem. That problem needs to get solved. Put on your hat as the decision maker, make a decision. The notion is these five core concerns we all care about. As you are trying to deal with conflict in your home, as you're trying to deal with conflict at work, be aware of these five core concerns. They trigger a lot of emotions, and you can use them to try and move things in the right direction. You know, like we talked about, how can I better appreciate you, Mina, for taking the time to talk with me today, and your listeners for taking the time to listen? That matters. You know, that truly matters. Dan, thank you so much. And I appreciate you taking the time to speak to us. Um, it's always so insightful to, to get your thoughts. So I'm going to ask you one last question as we wrap up our conversation. And that is, as we look forward and as people are negotiating risk and trying to know what's best for them, for their children, for their coworkers, making decisions about working from home, working from school, uh, sorry, working from the office, working from home. What advice would you give them about negotiating risk? The biggest danger is that people negotiate on the basis of positions. I say to my wife, I don't want our son playing soccer right now outside. It's too dangerous. And she says, well, I want him outside. And we focus at the level of positions and we battle this thing out. A much more effective conversation would be to look beneath positions to the underlying interests. Why? Why do you want, you know, why do I want Noah to, to not go to soccer? Why does my wife want him to go to soccer? And we suddenly uncover 15 different reasons that she has, 15 different ones that I have. And we realize, well, maybe there's a way that we could creatively get him to do some outdoor activities that don't expose him to the same kinds of risk but does still get him playing with his friends, getting that social need met, getting his enthusiasm for the sport to be met as well. So my advice there, if you and somebody are discussing risk, don't just battle it out at the level of positions. Look to the underlying interests. 
That's great. Thank you so much, Dan. That's so helpful. You're right to think about the interests and the long-term goal rather than just the position you've taken. Thank you very much for taking time to speak to us, and I wish you and your family good health. And hopefully, 2021 will be a kinder year and one where we can actually meet in person. Thank you. It is wonderful to talk with you, Mina. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my 2020. I've been your host, Mina Al Arabi. This podcast was produced by Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the series on your preferred podcasting app. Please also continue to follow our podcasts and reporting on thenationalnews.com.